I'm Alex Del Sordo. I'm Alex Del Sordo. I'm Alex Del Sordo, and we have we have just Eddie. It's Teddy Sauer. Needed to France. Eric Murray. It's Mahi Drysdale. It is Sir Matthew Vincent. Thank you for being here. I'm Alex Del Sordo's choice, and uh, this is another podcast. This is season five, episode four, and this is so cool. So we've been trying to get this guy for months, months, and I was so amped when I heard that, like. We got the time. We 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 figured it out. And um, you've 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 been tuning in to these episodes this year. We've been focused entirely on the entrepreneur, someone that has started a business that rode even one stroke in their career. This guy has a couple strokes, which I cannot wait to talk about. Um, but look, this dude rode in the '80s with a really fast crew, which we're going to get into. Um, and in that time period, rowing in America was really starting to boom, man. And he was on the the, the precipice of, of major rowing success in America in the early 90s into the 2000s. And this guy started a company that every single one of you are members of. Okay, this is not Instagram. It's not Facebook. But it's as addictive. It's insane. I am on it every Gosh darn day, I have a big bone to pick with this guy because I'm on it all the time. But I got Mark Ganey, one of the founders of Strava, that little app that tells you how bad you're doing and tells you how great you're doing and reminds you that your friends are doing more meters than you. And before we get into this whole big, long interview talking about the success of Strava and the highs and lows of being an entrepreneur, I ask the same question every single time. Mark, thank you for being here. It's my pleasure. Thanks for the I setup. Can't. Yeah, this is going to be good. I, I just love this, man. I'm so excited to talk about this era of rowing. But I always ask the same question, and it is how old were you and where were you when you took that first stroke? Oh, first stroke was the fall of 87. So I was in my sophomore year of college. And uh, we can go into the long story, but yeah, I was... I was sitting in the Newell Boathouse at Harvard. Someone had invited me down to check it out, and I was in the uh, I was in the um, the tanks, sitting there actually pulling on an on an oar in one of the tanks. And uh, uh, who is now a good friend of mine, Charlie Butt, uh, walked in and said, basically, <laughs> "What the hell are you doing in here?" And uh, one thing led to another, and I got put in a boat, and the rest is history. Well, let's let's die. I want to hear the long story. So so not not your freshman year, not in high school. So rowing was a completely foreign sport to you. Um, Harvard, arguably one of the most successful colleges, universities ever in the history of, of rowing ever. Um, Newell is is like Mecca for some people. It's the, the, the boathouse is it's right behind you. I know. And, and, and unfortunately, people can't see this. They might see it if they get on the YouTube channel. But um, what brought you to rowing? Like what, what drew you to Newell? Yeah. So we got to take a step back. So I grew up in Reno, Nevada, uh, not exactly rowing Mecca, uh, but uh, a great place to grow up, particularly if you're in love for the outdoors and, and being active. And, you know, I was a kid who grew up in the Sierras uh, working up in Tahoe and working as a ski instructor in the winter. And frankly was a big soccer player and runner and the running went particularly well. Uh, throughout high school. I was on an amazing cross-country team and track team. And uh, so well, in fact, that the Harvard track and coaches uh, had reached out my senior year and said, hey, would you have any interest in applying? And again, when you're a kid from Reno, Reno High School, and, and you're that far away from 
Harvard? The answer was no, I uh, hadn't thought about it. Um, but my dad said, hey, if they're going to contact you and be that kind, the least you're going to do is fill out the application. And one thing led to another. I ended up out there in in essence to go run. The problem was that I showed up my freshman year with a bunch of stress fractures and injuries and candidly was somewhat burned out. I'd, I'd had, again, a, a very fortunate uh, high school career as a runner and state champion and things, but I just was beset by a number of injuries over and over. So I took freshman year off to try to recover and, and uh, figure out what was next while I was there at Harvard. And um, it was uh, a good buddy of mine, a guy named John Chadwick, was on the, the novice crew team at the time. This is now the beginning of my sophomore year. And uh, he said, hey, they've got this novice program. You ought to come down and, and just check it out. I walked down there one day early in the fall of my sophomore year. And as I mentioned, I was I was in the uh, I was in the boathouse at the time, trying to figure out what this tank thing was. And Charlie walked in, and he started asking me a lot of questions. And I was a kid that was, you know, 160 pounds, and you know, six two, and had these long legs and long arms. And then when he heard that I was a runner, he's like, "Hey, let me let me put you in one of my boats." And <laughs> so I went straight from I mean, I went right into the deep end. I mean, he put me into one of the varsity boats uh, as a lightweight that sophomore year, and uh, Again, the rest is history. I, I mean, I'll never forget that first row. I was down in the basin there looking at Boston. The good news was I was addicted the minute that I got into that boat. The bad news was, I mean, I speared poor Greg Belmont. He'll never forgive me. I mean, my first row out, I'm, I'm a guy who did not belong in the varsity boat, but lo and behold, here I was uh, with them and absolutely almost put him right out of the boat. I'd, I'd crab so bad, but uh, Hey, they kept me in there and I went on to have a, a great three years. It was really fun. Your, uh, yeah, your obsession. I mean, you know, I think you don't find financial success and business success unless you're obsessed. And I don't know, like I've interviewed thousands of people in rowing and it's it's the same thing. You you catch this bug, you get this obsession. You can't stop thinking about it. Um, let me take a step back. How fast were you? Like, what was your distance? What were you running that drew the attention of Harvard row of Harvard coaches. Yeah. The, the key thing was that I won the state championship in cross country. So that was 5k. So the, the longer the distance, the better, you mm -hmm. know, and, it, but I, you know, I had the best mile time was 414. Uh, so I was, I mean, we were fast. I, ironically, I wasn't the fastest miler on my team in high school. We so had just 414 mile. You ran a mile. 14 mile. And there was a guy on my team who ran 411. Um, Jesus. Yeah, no, it was, it was, so we had, we had a strong group of runners, you know, you're running out there in Reno at 5,000 feet and uh, just an amazing team. But my, my strength was in the 5k and, and that distance. What kind of shoes were you running with? Like, what were you running in, in the, in the or mid eighties, mid eighties? Yeah, no, you know, it's funny that the, the racing flats that I remember were actually by New Balance at the time. You know, oh, got, yeah. I'm sure I had a little bit of everything, but I've got a distinct memory of a pair of uh, red and white New Balance that uh, were my good luck shoes. What do you, what do you wear now? What do you, what do you typically sport in? What do you do? You know, I gotta be careful. I mean, with Strava, we're, we're friends to everybody. Uh, <laughs> if I tell you what I ran in this morning, I ran in a pair of on running shoes, oh, yeah. uh, big, big fan of those I've, I've enjoyed those in the last few years. I've been in Hoka's I've been in Nike's I've been in Brooks, you know, you name it. But if uh, I, I got out this morning for a short run and, and threw on the ons. I love it. I love. All right, I love it. Hey, hey that's that, that's cool. All right, so you win the state championship. I don't know enough about five k running to say like 
that just seems fast. Like I'm a runner, but I don't run that fast. So Harvard says, come at me. Let's do it. Let's talk. Um, my, my guess, because of those stress fractures, did you work really hard all summer leading up to Harvard? Like, were you just putting in the time preparing yourself to be uber successful? Yeah, I think that there's, there's, Yes, uh, but no, no worse than anybody else, other than you're just nervous about like it's it's a whole step function greater. I mean, yeah. uh, it was going to be a big change for me on multiple levels. I was uh, clearly the competition was going to be stronger, but I was also moving to the East Coast. I was moving, you know, that to me was like moving to a foreign country. I was going to this place called Harvard, which, you know, candidly, again, growing up in Reno, I was like, only geeks go to school there. Why would I want to do that? And, yeah. you know, again, my my impression was, well, let me go try it. And worst case scenario, it's got to be easier to transfer from Harvard to somewhere else than than the reverse process. So I kind of went into it. Hey, let me just make sure that I'm as prepared as I can. And I had had some history of injuries. I, unfortunately, as we get into the story, you'll see that that injury and and just, you know, if you play hard at times, you, you pay the price. And uh, I'd had injuries throughout high school. And then again, um, and frankly, even even while at Harvard, I took the better part of my junior year off because I had a ruptured disc in my lower back. So it's, um, you know, it's all part of the process. But that that just led to an interesting fall my freshman year where the, the running coaches were great. The track and field guys, you know, it's not like they have athletic scholarships in the Ivy League. And so they were they were clear that, look, you need to take care of yourself and, you know, you'll figure it out. I, think, so, so I don't it, think they I, thought I would end up in the boathouse. I, I think that they thought I, I would come back and then that was the challenge for me was a really nice group of guys who are running or national caliber rowing. And that, that was too enticing. Uh, well, you know, the, the Harvard, Charlie, Butt. I mean, this, that's, there are some, I mean, there are Olympians that came out of your era, right? There are a lot of Olympians that came out of that boathouse at that time. And there's, there's always Olympians at Harvard. What am I saying? So 87, you're in the boat. Um, what boat did you make that spring season? Yeah, I was 3V, made the 3V. And, and so I was a lightweight being coached by Charlie at the time because Harry ran the program and Charlie was the head of the lightweights. Uh, I made the 3V, had a great experience. And then it was, uh, yeah, that, I mean, at that point, as I like to joke, my degree should say crew. I mean, that's, mm -hmm. I then, that's where I technically a degree in art history, but I spent all my time in a boathouse. Uh, what kind of uh, what kind of erg pieces were you guys doing testing? Were you doing twenty five hundreds, or was it typically the two K? Yeah, yeah. This this is old school. This is the crash bees were twenty five hundred, not yeah thousand. So we would yeah we do twenty five hundred. Uh, that was the irony was so I was your classic four seat. I was the engine room. I was you know I had absolutely no technique as you can only imagine. I mean again only held an oar starting my sophomore year. Um, but I could pull like an ox and just, I, you know, I was blessed with a big set of lungs. So yeah, we would well, do tell me, I mean, what, what kind of splits were you holding, uh, during that college time? I, you have to remember this. Well, uh, well, I, I remember only because, so I got a few highlights from my rowing career. One of them was crash B of my senior year. So this was back in the day when the crash B really was one event. It was, but it was massive, uh, held in this huge auditorium there in Boston, hundreds and hundreds of, of machines. It's, it's been years since I've been there, but I just remember that experience. And I made the finals and ended up being the the uh, top lightweight. The, the only other two lightweights who beat me were, were post-grad. And that one I rode, I was like right at 801, 802 for 2,500 meters. So it was right, right at that sort of sub eight. Oh, for lightweight. But that, that got me sort of the top 
college rower indoors for my senior year. So that was, that was one of the, that highlight. And then my senior year, uh, at the, uh, sprints, those were the two greatest days of my life. Uh, Did you make, you made the top out your, your senior year? So my senior year, I was, so classic story. Uh, I was one V through the whole season, right up until HYPs. We had HYPs at Harvard in the basin. And it was one of those just horrific days on the water, just, just wind and chop and everything else. And again, my downside, uh, was the simple fact that if it was calm and, and flat, I could pull. But if soon as the water got choppy, I think Charlie got nervous and so did I, and I just didn't have the technique and, you know, just didn't have enough. I didn't have enough strokes under my belt. And, uh, we did not do well in that HYPs, uh, not as predicted. And so he made changes to the boat. And I went from being in the 1V uh, at HYPs to being in the 2V. So it sounds horrible, but then there were two of us, uh, myself and another guy, the Bowman, that got moved down. But here's the upside. The upside was that 2V had struggled all season. Uh, we went into sprints ranked sixth. And... Uh, we crushed it. We won by open water and uh, just just had a fantastic race. And between you and I and the rest of the listeners here, the one V totally flailed and and did not have a good end to their to you know that senior year. Well, let me guess. Uh, the conditions so, were a nice light uh, tailwind, flat water on race day, and you would have dominated, right? That was and, and it was pretty good. It was pretty good. The conditions are pretty good. So I always it's not. You know, rowers are, uh, you know, I, I've largely learned how to compete with myself, but back then, hell no, I was, I was definitely sort of looking at the fact that well, you're going to make those changes to the boat. We'll see what happens. And, you know, there, uh, there's, there's some, uh, I want to clarify HYP, uh, tell the audience who may not know what HYP means. What does that mean? Yeah. Sorry. So that's, that is, uh, so for lightweights, there aren't a lot of rowers uh, and programs out there. So HYPs is Harvard, Yale, Princeton race, which is that and the sprints for the for the lightweights back then was a really big deal because uh, those were typically the three strongest programs. It's changed a lot since then. I mean, everybody now who's who's got it, but back then those were the three programs. You kind of built your spring season up for that race, and that really set up then the rankings for the for the sprints, uh, which brought everybody together at least on the East Coast. And then you're right. Then the, the lightweights would often go to IRAs, as you we were talking earlier before we started recording. Um, but the big races for us were really HYPs and sprints. You know, there's a, I have, I have a level of respect for you that I, I just need to say to the public going 801 or 802 for 2,500 meters is incredibly hard to do breaking eight minutes. And that most people that listen to this probably have never even done that kind of piece before. And at GW, that's all we did. Like we only did one 2K because our coach Greg Meyer was of the of the realm of like Wisconsin era back in those era 80s and 90s. And like that's all you did, right? So you're yeah. talking like you're going like 134, 135 as a lightweight is crazy fast, dude. So that's yeah, that, all. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, the thing that people just don't always appreciate is that as lightweights, it's not like we're at our natural weight. Like we're we're making weight. So I used to always joke, it's like it felt like I was always competing with one arm tied behind my back because we get in this amazing shape. And then even for crash bees, you, you know, I'd have to suck whatever it was five pounds down. And so I always felt like I was never competing at my penultimate sort of 
best condition because I was always either losing water weight or, you know, not putting calories in and things like that. So uh, not complaining at all, but it was just such an interesting part of the the puzzle to unlock was how to perform well when you really are sort of finding that fine balance between uh, uh, the weight and the performance. You're right. And um, I, I, it's very, it really is impressive. It took me till my senior year to break that. And I'm a heavyweight. So I was in the 185 range. And yeah. um, my best 2K ever was a 608. And like that was, I, I, I wanted to, I'm throwing up thinking about it, you know, and yeah. the lightweight, yeah. that's, that's incredible. Now, but you were, it's, I'm just, I'm interested about your height and weight, right? So at 6'2, were you never poached by Harry Parker to, add 20 pounds and, and, or was it really separated back in the eighties? Yeah. yeah, it was. There were a couple guys that, uh, particularly guys who, um, oh, Ted, what was Ted's like? There were, there were a couple guys who could bridge that gap, particularly if they had some good rowing experience coming out of high school and so forth. But no, it was, it was, there were a lot of folks that looked like me. I, I, my natural body weight in college is 168. Uh, for race day, I needed to make 158. Oh. Right, because the boat had to average 155. Uh, and so thankfully, and I had teammates who had to do the same thing, but they were at 158 and had to get down to, you know, whatever, 152 or 151. So we were all uh, going at it. But no, it was never, even though I had the height, I'd, I mean, at the end of the day, it was probably easier for me to just lose those 10 pounds of, of body weight each week, you know, through dehydration than it was to try to figure out how to put 25 pounds on this frame. I mean... <laughs> Uh, I'm, I am now 30 years out of it and I still weigh, I think, I think I'm naturally about 172. So, wow. you know, it's one of these just weird things where it's, it's never coming on. All right. So this is a hot topic in rowing right now. I just want your opinion. Cause you're, you're not a rower like racing every week, right? You're not, you're a rower forever, but you're not racing and you're not tied to us rowing in any way. What's your take on lightweight rowing as a whole? So right now they got rid of it. Um, I mean, it's go, it's going away in the Olympics, right? It's going away in high school rowing. It's already gone. Um, there is a much smaller now group of collegiate lightweights in the world. So yeah. what's your take on it, man? I, I'm sure you've, you've kept up with some of it. Yeah, a, a little bit. I mean, boy, uninformed opinion. So let's just put yeah, it yeah, yeah. No, we, we know. here. Uh, I'm, I'm saddened by it because I do think that it is one of these sports when you just you and I talk about sort of what we can do on an erg. There's just physics there that are very different. If someone weighs 185, 190, 200, and, uh, and they're going to pull, I mean, anybody who's here studies physics for a second, like there's just going to be a physical difference there that there's no way I'm going to overcome if I'm 30 pounds lighter, period, end of discussion. Now, if you get in the water, one could argue that you've got to, you've got to move that extra 30 pounds. So, you know, we used to always as lightweights, if ever we went up against the heavyweights out there in practice sessions, we're like, you know, bring it, you know, they don't, you know, they're carrying a lot of extra weight out there that they got to move through that water. So I'm saddened by the fact that it's not there. I, I mean, I think it's a bigger discussion because it's, it's gets into sort of the state of college athletics period and sort of what is the role of college athletics in the, in the student experience. And, you know, in the, in the era now of, uh, NIL and, and the big money, I'm, I'm saddened by it because it, it, as I mentioned earlier, like literally my degree should say crew. I mean, that experience absolutely defined and has defined the last 30 years of my life. My, my, 
arguably my best friend, my co-founder of two companies, including Strava, Michael Horvath, we met in that boathouse. Uh, everything that is, I know we'll get into Strava here in a little bit, but Strava is without a doubt, it is a byproduct of the experience we had. We, we wrote a business plan in 1995 that was basically, we need to recreate the locker room experience that we had at Harvard. I was so desperate for it after having graduated in 1990, I, I had to have it back. And so we were trying to figure out a way to create a virtual locker room on this new thing called the internet so we could bring all of our buddies back together. Um, now, you know, it took us an extra 15, 20 years to actually then go build that virtual locker room and create Strava and, you know, long, boring story there. But I'm long answer to your question, but I'm I, I'm kind of saddened by what's happened across a lot of different sports uh, and sort of the decimation in, in college sports and, and lightweights belong out there competing. So, man, you uh, no, you're, you're right. Man. And I didn't want to. Um... You, you you brought me into a perfect transition, which is is how you founded Strava and how you got to it. And I, you know, I've I've read a lot of I've read some of your interviews. I've I've did a little bit of background. And and for those like listening in, if I know the person I'm interviewing, I tend to research only about half hour because most of the coaches that I I you I spent a little bit more time on. And virtual locker room is like that is such a perfect uh, phrase. So when I started looking at my experience with Strava, that's how I was preparing for this interview. It's like, I need it. So I'm part of a couple of boathouses and every January there's a concept to ERG challenge and you, you log in your meters and you know you see who wins. I'm a Potomac Boat Club member and I'm also a Crescent Boat Club up in uh, Philadelphia. And there are guys on that team that we talk to one another all day long over Strava. And you're right. From a virtual world, you guys hit it on the head. Boom. Perfect. But you you had this idea in 95. I mean, you're five years out of Harvard. You guys are you guys are obviously like you're you're missing it. Uh you're missing that camaraderie, right? That connection. Um, walk me through that first conversation you had with uh with Mike, Michael. Um yeah. And like you're, you know, because you're five years out, like you weren't rowing anymore, dude. Like rowing was gone from you, right? So yeah. walk me through that first talk. Yeah, we we had both ended up on the West Coast. Michael was uh, teaching at Stanford. He was teaching economics. And uh, I was working for a, an investment firm in Palo Alto. And, you know, we both, there were two things going on. One was that I had actually, I, technically I had quit the investment firm. I'd worked there for four years had really caught the entrepreneurial bug. I'm living in Silicon Valley in the mid nineties. The internet is just starting to take off. And so I, half of me was very much just focused on, I've got to go try this entrepreneur thing. I, I, my job coming out of college, working at the investment firm was to literally call on entrepreneurs all day long and just try to get them to tell me their story. And if there was something interesting, then, then we were interested in trying to invest. So I, I just, in talking to all of them, I was like, I've got to be on that side of the fence. I used to always joke. It's like the investors are kind of like the cheerleaders. I want to be in the game. So I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And then I started thinking about, well, what are the problems uh, that I personally have in my life that others have in my life? And where are my interests? Because two things came out of my work at the investment firms, a firm called TA Associates, great group of people. Um, the partners that I worked for were very clear go solve someone's problem. 
if you solve a problem, even if you're a little tiny startup, they'll listen to you. So I was looking for problems. The entrepreneurs were always saying to me, look, you're going to be doing this 365 days a year. It's 24-7. You will, you'll find out that entrepreneurship is just something that you don't turn off. So because of that, try to focus on things that you genuinely enjoy. Um, so I was trying to marry my passion for sports and the outdoors and, and everything else with problem solving. And one of the big problems that I had come across, having graduated in 1990, moved to the West Coast, there was some rowing out here, but not much. And I started, I got back into running and I was, I was doing some local races and things like that. But I had this huge void in my life because while I was at Harvard, that experience of just going to the boathouse often twice a day, uh, you know, eating meals with my teammates, uh, it wasn't, it really rarely was the actual racing or the training. It was everything in between. It was, it was the trash talking. It was the, it was watching videos with, with folks and, and, you know, looking at the, the looking at the old uh, Olympic races and, and, you know, breaking those down. It was just everything that came from that. When I graduated, poof, it disappeared. And I just had this void. And, and you know, even my employer TA was like, Oh, you're going to love coming to work for us because that same competitive, we have that same competitive fire wrong, like great job, loved it. It was a perfect job, but didn't come close to fulfilling that. So Michael and I sat down and looked at a lot of different ideas, but one of the ideas that I kept coming back to was, is there some way we could use the internet to bring our buddies back together and post workouts and, and kind of create this virtual locker room? And we, we did start down that path. We, we started figuring out how we'd build it and find partners and developers to help us do it. And um, again, I won't bore you with sort of why it didn't happen then, but it, it didn't. It was just too early for the, the opportunity, but it introduced us. And probably the most important thing about that first version, it was called Kana Sports and Kana was the name of my dog. And, and so Kana Sports pursued this virtual locker room. It didn't work for a variety of reasons, but it introduced us to a different problem, which was customer email. We were talking to sporting goods companies, hoping they would be sponsors of this locker room. And they were all telling us that, we don't think we want to sponsor you because frankly, we can't deal with the volume of customer email and everything else coming into our website. And so Michael and I were like, well, that's really bad. Why would you build a website and not want to talk to customers? And uh, like, well, we're never going to get them to sponsor our virtual locker room if we don't get them to be happy about their internet uh, you know, business. So we started looking at ways to solve their customer email just so that they would become sponsors. And in the process of doing that, that customer email problem turned out to be much bigger and more lucrative than we ever could have thought of with our virtual locker room. So that's- oh, so, so it's so funny. You were like aiming for this thing, right? And you're like, all right, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get this. And then you wanted to solve their problem just to get a sponsor from some, what I want to say, some stupid idea at the time. Yeah. I was like, oh, I need a virtual locker room. And the customer, the customer base told you what they needed, what they wanted. Right. That's, I mean, that's, you know, business 101, it's like, you can't, when I started finish line, it, I, I thought it was going to be something. And then five years later, it's like, well, no, we need to really focus on this path. Um, you know, I, mean, I tell entrepreneurs all the time, don't, don't, don't let a bad idea or no idea get in the way of being an entrepreneur. Cause whatever idea you start with, it's rarely the one that you end with. And, um, you know, we're really fortunate in some ways, Strava is, is a bit of an anomaly in that, Ultimately, the vision that we we had for it in 2008, 2009, when we launched it and what it is today, 15 years later, is pretty close to sort of what we imagined, just not nearly the size and scope. I, I don't think we imagined the scale and the 
And, you know, we, we're, we're just blessed with, frankly, sort of how much fun we've seen it create for a lot of people. But you're right. Like, yeah, where you start is not often where you'll finish. And, and that's okay. Even the way you just, you know, we were talking about earlier, the rowing career. I mean, I had ups and downs and injuries and, you know, I'm shooting for the one V and I finished my career in the two V, but, but we win sprints and, you know, earn a varsity letter. I mean, that's not the path that you predict when you start your senior year, but uh, you got to go on the journey. journey. You'd love the journey. You just said it. You're like, dude, I just love being at the boathouse. I love talking to the guys. I love, and the shirts that you won. I mean, do you still have oh, yeah. the shirts, by the way? Do you oh, still oh, have yeah, them? Yeah, 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 yeah. Of course yeah. you do. Yeah. Yeah, it's bad. I've never I've never won sprints. I've done I raced it three times. Um, what's the medal look like? Do you have it? Do you still have that sprints medal? Yeah. Uh, in fact, okay. for the longest time, it was sitting in my office. I'm not sure where I've got it now. But yeah. Yeah. You know, I, and I would I would assume I would assume you've had that picture behind you for a while. What I love about our sport is you haven't done it in a while, but it's there forever in you, man. It's like yeah. it literally shaped who you are as a businessman as a father, you know, as a person, it shaped who you are. I, I love that. I love right. that. The, the, yeah. This is what I mean by the education that came from, I mean, the, the concept of, of the power of a team, um, I, you know, there's, there's a lesson that I, I tell all the time. Um, we were out on a long piece. Uh, it was, but, you know, go we're, we're out for an hour long piece and and really what charlie wanted from us was just great rhythm you know get that get that boat and you know a sense of swing and it was horrible like we we just could not get it right and he finally stopped us and this is again this is sort of the late 80s we were all wearing heart rate monitors really for the first time ever i mean wow big chunky things that you know nobody and uh, but we all had them on and, and he's testing out technology and so forth and he stops us and he says hey i just want each each of you to just call out your current heart rate. And we went down the row and sure enough, our captain of our team, I won't, I won't call him out right now. He's a great guy and he was an awesome captain, but the captain has literally got a heart rate 30 beat higher than 30 beats higher than, than any of the other guys. Wow. And Charlie says, Hey, James, like take it down a notch. Like let's, let's get in. And sure enough, as soon as he, came in and just relaxed with everybody else all of a sudden that boat moved faster so why do i tell that dumb story as it relates to entrepreneurship because it's like it's you know that it's not about always going as hard as you possibly can it's not in this case it's learning those nuances so that the team works really well together as one unit ah it was such a it was such an eye-opening moment because I, I i saw what he was doing our captain was trying to absolutely put everything he could into every session but there was nuance to it. And the nuance was, yeah, but you've, you've got to be in sync with everybody else. And I've taken that forward now 30 years and seen it over and over good teams versus, versus not bad, but teams that just don't function well. You got to, sometimes you got to take a step back and really listen. You know, it's fine, man. Oh my God, dude. I, your story, I can, I can name a dozen guys that I've experienced that with like right off the top of my head. I'm like, Oh, I've been in a boat with that guy and, and I've been experienced that guy. And I really hope that captain at the time, like learned that lesson and still, and, and it's instilled in him yeah. all these years later. Right. That's well, a, he's, a he's, big he's gone off to be very successful. So I, I have no doubt that he, and, and, and again, it was, I want to, I'm not calling him out from a bad thing. Like he was genuinely doing what he thought was in the best interest of the boat, which is, Hey, we're always working at a hundred percent and we're going to get this right. And, but it just was um, kind of to your point again, that, that journey and sort of, you know, 
again, for me, lessons that I learned out on that water and in that boathouse, I've carried forward for 30 years. You know, there's, there's so many, um, we try as rowers, uh, we try so hard to grow our sport and we're struggling. We struggle as a sport. We struggle promoting ourselves. We struggle explaining the story. The one thing that I say to everyone that I meet is I've never met an unsuccessful rower. Now that could, and however you want to describe success, success is so many different things. I tend to focus on financial or business success, but if if you're not focused on that, you're an amazing husband or a wife. You're an amazing father or whatever. I have yet to meet someone who's dedicated time to our sport be unsuccessful at something. Yeah, is it? Can you relate to that? I mean, is that something uh, that? Yeah, I know a hundred percent. I so I think that there's a. Um... One thing I always have to sort of dispel this truth. Some people sort of they'll, they'll see the pictures of of rowers out on the water and so forth, and they'll get these romantic notions of sort of uh, you know what it is like to be out on the water. And, and I always have to dispel this notion. I mean, even now, thirty years later, and again, I have not held more in a very long time. I I had a, a bike accident now about twenty years ago that just does not allow me to to, to hold an oar the way that I'd like to. Mm. But the uh, but what I always remind people is, hey, look, you have to understand when you're in that boat you're literally looking at the back of somebody else trying to optimize like the same exact movement as they are over and over and over. Like, so let's just dispel any notion like we're out on the water, we're having fun. We're actually, we're literally moving backwards. Like I'm moving in the direction of my back. I don't even get to see where I'm going. I only get, to, and I really don't even see where I've been because I'm just looking. So I think by definition, someone who gets into that, and that's it's the same challenge I have with people who ask me like, why do you love running so much? Is running so much? It's, I do think there's something in our DNA that's driven to just sort of this, there's, there is beauty in the grind. Yeah. There's, uh, you know, I always refer to things, I call it the three P's. Everybody knows Mark's three P's. Like, look, you got to have patience. You got to be persistent and you got to maintain perspective. Uh, and if you can do those three, I don't care what endeavor you're after, whether you're whether you're trying to learn Olympic gold or you're trying to start a business or you're trying to become the world's greatest cardiologist, it's that's what happens out there on that water. And, and it's so palpable. Anybody who's listening to this knows like it's the beauty of rowing is that it it literally grabs you three-dimensionally. Like you you see it, you feel it, you know it when you're in that boat, where in real life it's much harder to to find. You know, Bob, this is so great. You're you're so right. And I know that I read that you one time said perfection was one of your three Ps, right? And then you got rid of that. And I don't want to get into the ball. I don't want to get down that yeah. rabbit hole. You got rid of the uh, perfect uh, perfection. So Good. in pandemic hits 2021, um, I meet with a guy that I used to row with back in college and we started rowing together again. And what I found was my business took off again. I was grinding it out again. I was reliving rowing. And when I was building finish line, I sort of got away from training a lot. I, I raced at Henley in 2016, but it really didn't go well. What I find is like the sport brings you back to that grind phase. And I just had an interview recently with someone who bought, who started a company, sold their company for quite a bit of money. And he said that his success in that business came from those times, those years that we rode together at, at Potomac. And that when you're in that team, that team environment, and you, and you lost it at that um, tech company in the, in the early 90s, you know, you were looking, you were always seeking it. Um, yeah. It's just anyone listening, it's so important. I got to tell you, like, this sport teaches you lessons and values. And when you can get back into it, everything else in your life becomes easy. 
I would imagine that you can close your eyes right now and think of a Charlie Butt workout that fucking killed you. Oh. And there's nothing harder than that, especially when you go off the water, you lost a race with one of your buddies, you're talking yeah. about it all day long. There's nothing harder than that time. And yep. Strava is so cool that it actually allows you to talk about it during the day, right? You, you struggle, yeah. you, you learn the struggle. All right, well, that's a segue. I want to get into 2008, 2009. Um, I'm in college in 04 to 08. I see Facebook. It's it's arguably very similar to Strava, right? It's like groups of people, it's network, it's community. Why did you think in 08, 09 that you guys had something different? Because you know, on the surface, someone would say, hey, Facebook is doing the same thing. Yeah. yeah well, uh, yeah, they were and they weren't. I, I think that the two things that got us excited about kind of revisiting the virtual locker room and specifically sort of could we build so i'll take a step back michael and i having founded kana had great success there took it public uh but had some unfinished business uh i had left that company in 2000 he'd actually left before me um you know good financial outcomes but it, it wasn't the company that was built to last that was one of the, that was one of the books that we were all read jim collins built to last we used to give that book and the art of war to every employee who joined. Con. Oh my God. It's so it cheesy. Like, it like this it. great sort of yin and yang of sort of how to build business. But there was a chip on our shoulder a little bit about Kana and that despite its financial success for investors and things, it went through all the tumult of that, you know, the dot-com boom and then the nuclear winter that happened afterwards in the early 2000s. And so when Michael and I came back together, one thing that we said was we'd love to build something that could last. The second thing we said was if we had gone and founded another company. Let's make the list of all the companies that we admire that we wish we'd founded. And it was really interesting because it was not a list of a bunch of tech companies. It was it was these iconic consumer brands. It was it was the Patagonias of the world or the Oakley sunglasses or the Virgins of the world that that we really admired and so we then started thinking about well since we're technology guys, software guys, could we create that consumer brand that was trusted? Uh, and how would we go about doing that? And so that leads to then what we really started to look at tactically was, you know, if you look at what had changed from 1995, to 2008, two things. One was what you're describing, which was people's interaction online was very different. And back in 1995, nobody was sharing what they had for breakfast. By 2008, 2009, you're right, Facebook and Twitter and yeah. MySpace, there was now this sort of social conversation that was taking place online where people were much more comfortable sharing personal information, particularly if there was value coming back. So we were cognizant of that. We were also cognizant that almost more importantly for Strava, there were now devices that were capturing data and workouts in ways that were not capturable in 1995. Um, uh, everybody loves to talk about the smartphone. It, it was actually, it predates that. It was the Garmin devices on people's handlebars and on your wrists oh, wow. yeah, yeah, yeah. in 2008, 2009 where we were looking at those devices, and these were basically mini computers that people were treating like a circa 1986 Timex Ironman. It was really funny. I mean, there was all this data, yet for the most part, we got start, stop, we look at our speed, we look at how far we went, and then we'd erase it. And we just thought, that's crazy. Uh, and this is where I'll give a shout out. That, you know, Michael and I co-founded, but there's a really important person in Strava. His name is Davey Kitchell. He was a rower out of Dartmouth. Michael had gotten to know him because Michael was living up in Hanover, New Hampshire at the time. And Davey was working on all kinds of creative ways of generating like 
ways of looking at power output for rowers. Uh, and he was building devices on on uh, on boats and things like that. And so we were now now we're brainstorming with him, and we just came to really appreciate that there's a lot of data being captured by these devices that is being underutilized. And if we can figure out new ways of visualizing and creating insight out of that, and then we can connect that data with other people so that you can begin to do a compare and contrast, that's different. That, that, is, that doesn't exist out there today. And so that's, that's the genesis of, of why we thought Strava was worth a, a second go around. And uh, so at the time, you you thought monetization was subscriber based, like that people would yeah. pay to be part of it. That was day one. Day one, and the thinking there was uh, it goes back to what kind of business we wanted. We were so enamored by this idea of a consumer business. We wanted Strava to be as important a piece of gear as you know the cyclist frame or the runner's shoes. Uh, and again, it's sort of. Michael and I, uh, I'll call him out now because he and I are both, you know, we have a, uh, an obsession that some people will hate and others will love, but he and I both love sort of old school classic Porsches. And, mm -hmm. and that's, uh, it's that mentality of sort of having that thing that you build really well for a very specific audience, and but it's good enough that they'll pay you for it. That was our thesis with Strava. And whether it was a car or it was a pair of running shoes, we wanted Strava to be that in that category. And so for us, we knew we'd be successful if somebody saw enough value that they wanted to pay us every month or pay us once a year. Now, data privacy is like really important. I would have thought, my my head was like, you got all this data, you can go healthcare, you could go all this stuff. That, But day one, it was like, I believe that the crazy cyclist or the crazy rower will pay a hundred bucks a year to be a, a subscriber to this. Like yeah. that, that's incredible. Like 2008, 2009, when this is a selfish question, when did rowing become a sport on the Strava app? Cause like, I would like, if you say, if it was not number one, I'm going to lose my shit, dude. It should be number one. Right. Oh, I know uh, you are. You're going to lose your shit, Alex, because it's been, it is one of the worst. It's, this is, I, I will fully own this. This is, this is now the business person and not sort of the passionate rower in us. It was not number one, two, three, four, five, or six. It was, it was, and we got so much grief from all of our rowing compatriots and and friends. Uh, and and today, I'll, I'll be the first to argue it still isn't what we want it to be. It's not. Let's let's be clear. It's it's a. Um, I always tell people, look, use really amazing third party rowing apps that are out there because we've worked very hard to make sure that they can integrate with Strava. So you can get your basic data there. But no, we didn't. Uh, the quick story is we we did pick one category. Uh, it was a go-to-market strategy, and we picked the road cyclist, uh, affectionately known as a mammal, M-A-M-I-L, middle-aged man in Lycra. That was our target audience. <laughs> that was it. It it And why do we do that? There were a couple of reasons. One was when you looked at the sort of the marketplace that was out there, this again, 2008, 2009, First of all, let's be clear, nobody was doing a rowing app, but there were a lot of running apps or a lot of multi-sport apps. And we kind of saw this sweet spot where people weren't addressing cycling, yet cyclists were obsessed with their data. They had really good devices. The, the Garmin's that were sitting on people's handlebars were really good and data rich, uh, easy to get the data out of. And so that was our go-to-market. We use this phrase, you know, go an inch wide and a mile deep. 
And so we just said, look, we're going to target these roadies. We're going to build something that works really well for them. And if we're successful, we'll then replicate out across other sports. And then what happened was, well, what's the next obvious sport? Well, it's running. And, and then frankly, we started looking at our athletes and what else are they doing? And that led to things like swimming because the triathlete and that led to indoor activities because people were strength training and doing yoga and so forth. And, and, you know, now you're right. Rowing is in there. Uh, <laughs> I probably once a month, I get an email from one of my fellow rowers saying, how come the segment is screwed up on the Charles river? And like, I know the problem is we don't know if you're in an eight or you're in a four and, you know, you can't really be on a leaderboard and there's all kinds of problems with Strava. Yeah. You know, I, you know, I hate as an entrepreneur, I hate when someone says, you know what you should do. You know what you should do. It's like, bro, you're not in my business. I will say, if I send you some icons, I th it should not be the two oars crossed. I might suggest, Mark, that we change the icon of rowing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's in the future, buddy boy. But um, I want to get to the goal. So, you know, when you sign up for rowing, you don't say, I'm going to win the national championship. We always talked about the journey, right? Like the journey, the journey. You, yes, you want to win sprints, but you know that's probably not going to happen. When you started Strava in 0809, was there a goal because I, I, for me, I need a goal, right? Like I need, like I need to hit something. You guys have estimated 120 million uh, members of Strava. That's insane, right? So, like, was there a goal when you and Mike started? Uh, yes, and it, but it was different than what it is today, for sure. Yeah. So when we started, uh, it's been kind of funny. Both the companies we've launched, we've been accused by prospective investors and others like you guys don't launch businesses you, you barely even launch a product you're you're launching a hobby <laughs> in the Strava's case there was some truth to that like part of our thesis if I'm being fully honest part of our thesis was could we do something that would support a small team that would keep us motivated it, in many ways it was very selfish in that I wanted to launch a business that now I'm in my at the time I was in my early 40s um love being active, love competing, but life gets in the way constantly. So for me, the, the mission of Strava was as much sort of a selfish exercise in, can I create something that will help me stay active uh, and live that active lifestyle that I so much enjoy, but I find is it, it, it's hard. Even those, those of us who are incredibly passionate about it, still like between, as you said earlier, you know, your three kids and and keeping you up late, and then and then you got work that you got to do, and and then and then some injury steps in, and you, you get thrown off, whatever it is. So our mission in the early days of Strava was, could we create something that is economically viable? Maybe it's bootstrapped. Maybe we don't raise any capital, uh, and but it fulfills a need, and that need is for us and for those of us who are who are like minded. What happened by late 2010 was that we had the beginnings of something really interesting. We, without a lot of capital in, we were seeing really good organic growth. We were seeing very good conversion on the subscription. And we were beginning to think, geez, are we being penny wise, pound foolish? Is there something, is there something bigger here? And thankfully we had, we had some great investors behind us and, and or were willing to come in and, and back the idea. And we really sh begin to shift the trajectory of the business in late 2010, early 11, and um, and then began thinking about you know what might be possible. And you're right, today it's 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 crazy. Hundred, we're actually over 130 million. We're in 190 countries. Um, 
we're uh, we're having fun and fr frankly still feeling like we're just getting started it's um oh yeah I, 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 do. I, I can't imagine where it's actually headed um this is a, a personal question um because I, I think about this all the time you know you guys my guess and i don't know the numbers and i don't want you to tell me the numbers but when you sold and you left kana you guys were independently well well off you guys could have done whatever you wanted you you but you got investors for strava like do you like having investors like that's that's a challenge man i mean you're probably going to say oh of course i do alex you know because you got investors listening to this but that's really hard man like that's a really hard thing yeah. um because you could have financed it yourself do you what do you recommend um, yeah. for the entrepreneur listening to this in that in that space? Yeah. Well, I'll start by I mean every situation is unique, and and I would say that I have. Um, I'll start by saying in both companies, Kana and Strava, I we've been very fortunate to have great sets of investors, and not all investor is equal, but we've been really lucky in that way. Um, uh, that being said. It's not without its challenges, a hundred percent. And and in Strava, I could, I mean, we're 15 years in. I can tell you of all kinds of dark moments between Michael and myself and the investor, the investor groups that are involved and so forth. So it's not, it's not linear. It's not everything's not, and again, back to the journey. So I can the upsides and the downsides. And I do think that if an entrepreneur reaches a point where they believe that capital infusion is really critical for their business they just eyes wide open uh and it goes back a little bit to this team concept that you and i were talking about earlier and chemistry of a great team great teams are not always about bringing the all-stars together and just assuming that they're going to work it's it's literally the chemistry it's the you know i i always go um it's you know what what's the uh, what's the great documentary on uh, Jordan's final year and the oh, last oh, dance. Oh, yeah the last dance the last yeah. dance right I mean there's so many lessons in that one that I think are applicable across these and across businesses where you know they were constantly sort of reshaping the team to fit around some of those the asset the asset that was Michael and and Scotty Pippen and and so forth and I think that that's what's critical here is that if you're bringing investors in it's not just the money like. Who are they? What kind of relationship are you going to have with them? What's the, what are their needs? Uh, what are they trying to do? And I'm not just talking about as a firm, but even as an individual, we've, we've learned a lot in recent years where if an individual is early in their career and in investment, they may be having pressure on them that affects their decision-making relative to what's in the best outcome for the company. So these subtle, again, it gets back to these nuances, um, but I'm not opposed to investors coming in or out. I just think it's very dependent on the on the situation. And if I was to go start a company tomorrow, I would start with, can I bootstrap it? Yeah. Um, different set of problems, right? It's not like one is easier than the other, but I would I would start there. And then if I really see the opportunity for investors, that's where I would want to go. I like opportunity versus need. When you need the capital, that's when investors are tough. When there's opportunity for them, then I think you have a really good, healthy relationship. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah dude, you nailed it. So uh, that's that's perfect. Um, I've experienced it both ways. And as a rower, as a father, husband, business owner, I'd rather have the stress of making it work with my own money than having somebody else's like, and I, at this point in my career, I'm 11 years into owning a business. I, I've not 
I've not had the opportunity for an investor to come in to make money, right? And I'm not there yet. And I think, and maybe I'll never get there. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if that's a problem or not. Um, no. I don't know. I just, I, I just, I think about it a lot. Um, and I, I just, I just love that. So my last question for you um, is you've, you have a new CEO. So you have a new, I guess I would say leader of a company, right? Um, you're, I think, 57, 58. You're about, you're about late fifties. Is that right? I'm, I'm 50, I'll be 56 in April. Yeah. 56. My man, dude. Yeah. All right. You got, you got a couple kids, um, 56. You still, you still got a lot of juice in you. You know, you can't row. I mean, Jesus Christ, Mark, that drives me nuts, by the way. I know I can, Sorry, hold bird, but I just can't, I can't hold an oar, which is really sad. I don't know. Well, maybe, maybe I'll get you in a boat. Who knows? But listen, you're 56. You get this new CEO. Like, what do you do now for the company? Like, what, what is it? What are your responsibilities? Yeah. And was it really hard to let go of that CEO role? Yeah, it, great question. There's there's uh, there's been a lot of chapters. So I've I've been fortunate to be CEO twice in Strava's history, and then as has my co-founder Michael. Uh, and you're right. After a long search this past year, Michael was running the business. I was serving as chairman. Um, we did find a, a great gentleman. His name is Mike Martin, uh, who stepped in January 2nd and is now leading the company. I remain chairman of the board at Strava right now. So I'm on the board and remain active at that level, which is an appropriate level. I like to joke that uh, in some respects, I went from having the steering wheel of the car. Then I was in the passenger seat as executive chairman and working with Michael. I'm pretty sure they put me in the trunk at this point. Uh, I'm still in the car, theoretically going down the road, but really the only way I can get anybody to listen is if I, you know, if, if we're starting to like bounce around, then I start banging on the back of the, the trunk compartment, um, which is fine. That's where it should be. Um, there's an amazing team that's in place there. Mike is going to, is going to shape his own team. It goes right back to what we talked about earlier. He will, he will build a team that allows him the chemistry that he needs. Uh, and he's the right person now, you know, the company is we're between four and 500 people, it's a global business. Uh, there's a lot of complexity to it. Uh, and I think both Michael Horvath and myself just acknowledge that we're, we're startup guys. Like we're, we're, we're happy to support the business as, as co-founders and so forth and provide insight and history. But, you know, there's a, I do think that there's an evolution of these businesses and there's just different skills that are, are required. And one isn't better than the other. Um, but you have to be willing to evolve the business. And so we're we're really excited about Mike and what he can bring because it's totally different from what Michael or I could have ever brought to the company. But, you know, we talked about this almost like the first five minutes of the interview and it's like this obsessiveness. You know, you have an obsessive personality. I guess, you know, when you get into something, you really get into it, you know, and, and I know you've said that in previous interviews. How are you filling in your time? If you're that guy in the back of the trunk going for a ride, you know, you're, yeah. you know, you're, you're way of describing it. Um, which by the way, I love that. Just like, I can just see you just like, Hey guys, we have a problem. Um, yeah. How do you fill in your time now? Well, uh, to, to Strava, Strava still, there, there's interesting stuff given the transition and Mike coming on board and so forth. So I'll, I'll start there. Like Strava still, there's a level of activity, but you're right. That's, that's by no means a full-time job. Um, I was fortunate I got, I was remarried this summer. Uh, and so that's been just sort of, you know, I've, I've kind of taken a deep breath and appreciated sort of everything that comes with that. I went from two kids, there are six kids between the, the two of us. So that's been a lot of fun. And it ranges from my two boys who are graduating from college 
this spring. Uh, and so, you know, I'm very excited for what happens with them next. And, but then we've got a seventh grader. And so, you know, there's, there's some personal stuff that has consumed me over the last six to nine months. And then, you know, candidly, there's a, there's a doc that's open on my computer. That's called chapter three. That, um, is, uh, you know, there's always going to be another company. I don't want to stop working. Um, I'm training for, I got two great training partners right now and, and we're planning to go do the rim to rim to rim this spring. Uh, so I'm going to go do that, that run. So that's, that consumes some time. And, and then while I'm out running, I, I'm thinking about business ideas and, you know, we'll, we'll see what, we'll see what happens, but uh -huh. yeah, no, it's, you know, it's just, just, just keep it fun man. just keep it, keep it fun. Well, uh, Mark, thank you for doing this. This is uh, this has been a joy, and I have had so much fun. I really hope you did too. Going back to memory lane, and and then talking about your businesses. So, um, I, I don't have to tell you, like Strava. Everyone knows. Everyone knows the darn app. There's so many people using it. And uh, eh, thanks for being here, man. I really appreciate well, it, Mark. I, I've just I'll, I'm gonna I will go on record. I am going to apologize to all the rowers in the world who are on the Strava. We fully acknowledge that the rowing experience is not what Michael and I would want. Uh, I'm not sure that Mike Martin, the new CEO, is going to be jumping in to get rowing up to speed anytime soon. So everybody just be patient. But I do know things that are coming that will make the overall Strava experience that much more exciting and more fun. So stick with us uh, and we'll all have fun together. Any, any rower that has complaints, email alex at rowerschoice.com. I will compile them into a database and I will personally send them to Mark. Yes. Uh, everyone tuning in, this is season five, episode four. Thanks for, uh, for being here. See you. Thanks, Alex.